Well, the title of this morning's sermon is You Are With Me. You Are With Me. It's hard to imagine, if you understand what that's talking about, it's hard to imagine a title or a thought that could be more encouraging or comforting than knowing that God is with us, that he says he'll never leave us or forsake us, and no matter what we're going through, he will be there right by our side throughout. And you're thinking about Psalm 23. It works into Psalm 23 here in the section we're getting to. Today we've been going through Psalm 23 sort of clause by clause, and we began at the beginning. And we've now gotten to the first part of verse 4, and that's, Lord willing, what we'll cover here this morning. The theme, though, of Psalm 23 is found in verse 1. As you look, if you haven't turned there, you could look. You can turn there. But the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So we've observed that the theme of this psalm is because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's taken care of every facet, past, present, and future of my needs, whether they're spiritual, physical, emotional, financial, relational. He cares about me. He's interested in me. He's intensely interested in me. And he desires to provide everything that I need, not everything that I want, but everything that I need. I shall not want doesn't mean I won't want anything in a human sort of negative look at that word of wanting things without regard for God's will, but in the sense of I'll lack nothing. There's nothing that I need that I'll be without because the shepherd is the one that is undertaking for his sheep. And if I'm one of his sheep, then I have confidence that no matter what is going on, I lack nothing because God has never left me hanging. He's for me all of the time. He's good all of the time. And he provides for every need all of the time. So as we've been looking at this psalm, we've then seen that the rest of these clauses elaborate on or break down or expand on this idea that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And so we've looked at a number of different clauses and look down at your, your page with me, but we've seen he makes me to lie down in green pastures was the first specific illustration of that concept that I lack nothing because the Lord is my shepherd. And so as he makes it possible for me to rest, we saw that that was the takeaway there of verse 2a. And then he leads me beside the still waters. He makes that refreshment possible because it's being spent with him. But he leads me beside the still waters. He doesn't force my head under the still waters and force me to drink the provision that he makes for me. Then we see he restores my soul. He restores my soul. And he's done that in the past and he continues to do that in the present as he wants to live life in intimacy with me. Then he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And we saw that his, for his namesake ultimately modifies he restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness and it frankly modifies everything that had come before that in the sense that he has a reputation because that's the kind of God he is is how we broke that down. Because that's the kind of God he is, because that's what his character is like, then he continues to provide for me in all of these ways, the most recent of which that we looked at was he leads me in the right paths. And we broke down how the right paths could be right in the sense of righteous and con- consistent with his right standing. They could be right in the sense of their safe paths. They could be right in the sense that they're direct. They bring you to the desired destination as directly as possible with the least amount of wandering. And so we looked at that last week. Now we move on to verse 4 here. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's, Lord willing, what we'll cover here this morning. But let's finish the psalm so that by the time we're done with this psalm, maybe some of you who haven't learned it previously, you could have learned it, or you'd be very familiar with it anyway. But the rest of the psalm says, Your rod and your staff, and they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of my favorite songs as a kid to sing. I probably couldn't sing it here this morning, but that last verse, many of you know that song, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days, all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. Quick pause. Sasha knew that part, but she had never heard she had never heard this part, how you incorporate this I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now this goes a little higher. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I shall feast at the table set for me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days, all the days of my life. Well, that was sweet. (laughs) Thanks for humoring me with that. Hmm. God's word just gives and gives and gives again. It never runs out of steam. You know, we run out of steam. God's truth never runs out of steam. It's, It's just as needed today as it was yesterday, and it'll be needed again tomorrow. You can keep coming back to these promises, but what an awesome God. Thank you so much for providing us with these promises. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into verse 4. We have communion to celebrate here today too, so we'll try to make a little bit quicker work of that, and I'll try to, I know some of you are skeptical, but we'll, we'll try to move through this a little bit quicker today. So it starts out with yay, and you think about, well, that's not a word that I use a lot other than when I say, yay, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. And, and just, I'm not even sure that's a word. So, But, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But we look at that word, yay, and it simply means even when, or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's interesting because it's stated as something that is anticipated to happen in life. He's, he's not saying this might possibly happen. He's saying when, when, even when, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This isn't a question of will I walk through these kinds of places. It's when I walk through these kinds of places, what will my mentality in that be? What will my takeaway be? in that? How will I respond to that? What, what will I feel in those times and what, how will I get through those times? And obviously you don't have to be too knowledgeable about this to know that the valley of the shadow of death doesn't sound like a very happy place. It doesn't sound like a very pleasant place. It doesn't sound like a very desirable location to go. But the David, as he's writing this psalm, he's saying, it's not, it's not when this happens, it's not if this happens, it's when this happens. And so then we move into, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, when you're looking at this, valley refers more to a narrow ravine than a traditional wide valley. So if you're thinking about, you know, there's widely spaced mountains and there's this great green valley in between the mountains. That's not the idea David's going for here. We're talking about a very narrow passing through a rock outcroppings on on either side is sort of the idea. And that's very traditional with the region that he was raising these sheep outside of Bethlehem. So the Hebrew word refers to a very dark shadow or deep darkness. So when, and this is going to happen, so it's stated as when this happens, when I'm walking through this narrow ravine, of a very dark shadow or a deep darkness is associated with that. And so when you're thinking about diving further into this, approximately half of the English translations omit any reference to death. They translate this section as darkest valley. So when, even when, I'm walking through the darkest valley. Again, because that's the focus. The focus is on a place that is dark where I can't see where the walls are rising up on either side. So when I'm walking through the darkest valley, and as you're thinking even about the shadow of death, so even if you're going to incorporate death, the reason it's incorporated because it's, we'll get to it a little bit more, but it's because this dark place is associated with like a near-death kind of a feeling or a near-death experience. But you know it's not specifically focused exclusively on death as some people have concluded because it doesn't say that. It says the valley of the shadow of death. And so even if you include the word death, again, 
Many translations do not, but even if you include that to describe this dark place that you're going through, it's the shadow of that. It's not the actual thing. A shadow is an outline or an approximation of the real thing, but it's not the actual thing. And so when you're trying to summarize, what is he getting at here when he's talking about the valley of the shadow of death, but specifically the shadow of death? This is sort of a summary of it. So the scope of this phrase is quite broad. It's general and it's expansive. There's not a specific idea in mind here per se. It can apply to a bunch of different dark places or, or hard things that you might be going through in life. So it certainly can apply to death or a near-death experience. There's nothing wrong with seeing that in this passage. That's why they're saying the shadow of death because it's that type of a thing, a very emotional and difficult and dangerous and turbulent and hard time in your life is what David is talking about. When I walk through those kinds of circumstances, those kinds of places in my life, he can say that this has happened. It, it could be happening as he writes this. It, it's going to happen again. He knows that these are a part of the normal travails and trials associated with life. So even when that's happening, when I'm walking through that kind of a place. Now, did David have near-death experiences? Yeah. yeah. He did even from a child where he came into conflict, he said, with a bear, with a lion. How many of you have had to fight a bear or a lion off of your pup, your dog, your cat, your kids? No one, right? If you have, come on up here. We want to hear the story this morning. We have time. If that's happened to you, we have time. No hands. (laughs) I do wish one of you would have raised your hand because, man, would I love to hear this story about how you fought a lion off of your dog. Now, I know some of you have had to go protect your dogs from different kinds of things, right? We'll give our lives for those dogs. You will. I won't, but some people will. (laughs) All right. But it can also refer to any darkness that seems like death or where there is no life. Now think about that. Think of places that are already coming to your mind. I know they are because they were coming to my mind. Even when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what what does that mean to you? What has that looked like in your life? If you keep with this sort of death-like or near-death motif, motif, did it feel like death? It feels like death. What are those things that felt like that? Now as you look back, you know that you were being dramatic a little bit. You're making it worse than it was maybe. Other times you were being perfectly reasonable about how you were seeing it. It was really close to death or like death. It had no life in it. It was a really dark and hard time. So there's a combination there. Sometimes as we grow and we mature and we look back at things, I know there were things that I thought were the end of the world in a moment when I was 10 that looking back, you know, that was just goofy. Uh, Same thing about when you're 15 or 50. (laughs) So there's a certain number of things that we overblow. We, you know, we are overblown in our own minds. We make them out to be more than they are. And my kids have been saying that to me about I got a used truck, but it's new to me. And I had given up on my old car. I'd given up on trying to keep the kids from just destroying it. I'd just given up. I'd lost all hope with that one. And so they'd gotten into kind of a routine of just do whatever you want. And now I've become kind of harsh about don't do that or this or that or mess up this truck. And the kids are saying to me, it's just a truck, Dad. (laughs) So you can be a little bit dramatic about things at time. You can blow things out of proportion, and they're they're right. It It is just a truck. On the other hand, it's also a good teaching moment to talk about being good stewards of things. We don't have to unnecessarily ruin things or destroy things just because just because we can. But any darkness that seems like death or where there is no life, any time of darkness, trouble or hardship. So you see how general this is is getting. It's any time of darkness, trouble or hardship, or any dangerous place or circumstances that would elicit fear or uncertainty. You don't have to narrow this application. This is a very broad application. When, even when, I walk through any of these kinds of places, when, when that's where the path 
leads. It goes through hard things, troubling things, scary things, dangerous things, uncertain things, near-death things, things that feel like there's no light or life in them. When, when the path leads through those kinds of places. And you think about it. Life is hard. It's full of hard things. Oftentimes, I think we have to, as Christians, we think that we have to, as Christians, pretend that there's nothing hard in life. There are very hard things in life. God says there's victory in all of those things. We're more than conquerors in all of those things. Through him who loved us, I'm standing in your love. There's no fear when I'm standing in your love. Perfect love casts out fear. It is true that in your presence there is fullness of joy. It's true that even in the face of a storm or a trial or a hardship or a shipwreck or a loss in my life, I can still have God's peace even in those moments. That's true, but it does not mean that there's never hard things. There are plenty of hard things. There's plenty of people in the Bible that went through very difficult things where they were despairing for their very lives. And you think about your own life, there's been hard things. There are hard things. We, we're not going to have a show and tell kind of a thing where we're going to have people come up and give testimonials, but this moment, right where you're sitting, you have hard things that you're facing. Now, there, we could, if we wanted to be sort of objective about it as a group and vote on which ones are truly harder than others, we might be able to rate them to some extent. No one's saying that every hard thing is equal, but life is full of challenges. We'll just put it that way. It's full of difficulties. And so, your path can and does include dark valleys where the sunlight is obscured by the mountains on either side. Picture this idea of a ravine where you have rock walls going up on either side. Now, those places are dark. Why are they dark? Because the sun is blotted out. There's no light in them. I was in a slot canyon, where was it? In Utah. Was it in Utah? I think it was. Outside of Zion National Park. Those slot canyons, there's no light in them. Hardly any. Because, because the combination of shadows and the inability for the sun to get a direct angle to shine into them. That's what, that's what David is picturing here. And life has those things in it. Now, the question is, how do you find yourself in circumstances like this? How do you find yourself in circumstances like this? Well, there's many ways. There's many paths that lead into dark valleys. Now, the two main ones, if you're going to break it down into categories, the two main ones are sometimes the good shepherd's right paths include dark valleys. Sometimes the good shepherd's right paths include dark valleys. Now let's look at our context. In our context, he restores my soul at the start of verse 3. He leads me in the paths that are right or righteous for his name's sake. Now immediately on the heels of that, even when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death in the immediate context, it's the good shepherd that's leading into the right paths and the good shepherd's right paths sometimes lead into dark valleys. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Other times, wandering sheep find dark valleys on their own, don't they? So sometimes it's the Lord's direction in our lives that bring us to hard, difficult trials, dark places, dark valleys. And sometimes we wander ourselves to hard, difficult valleys and dark places. And the third category that I don't have on here but is, is also true is in other times our association with other people brings us to places that are dark and hard and could be described as dark valleys. Where in that sense it's really not necessarily any doing on our part but it's our association with them that results in us being in or dragged into a place that is quite dark, is quite difficult. And so those are at least three ways that one can find themselves in a dark valley, a place that is hard, a a place that would tend to elicit fear or uncertainty, a place that would be described as dangerous or troubling, a place where life, there's no real life, it doesn't feel like I'm really living in that kind of a place. Now remember though that David is drawing on his personal experience in this Metaphor. So in the immediate context, he's been talking about the good shepherd is the one leading and the dark ravines are part of the right paths he has for his sheep as he's leading them to 
something else. So as David's drawing on his own experiences, he would be referring to his time spent shepherding sheep, sheep, not sheep, <laughs> sheep in the Bethlehem area. So shepherding in the Bethlehem region involved con- constantly moving sheep to new pastures, often higher into the hills, filled with narrow passages and, rev- and ravines. And so one of the articles that I was reading about this said that in that region, because of the scarcity, so don't picture in that region, don't picture these lush green fields. Picture scattered sustenance for the sheep. So they would have to cover five square miles per day in order to get enough nourishment for those sheep. So a shepherd was constantly moving the sheep from one little spot to the next spot to the next spot to the next spot and to getting them from one place of nourishment to another place of nourishment, it involved moving to all of these different places. Well, in that hilly country, there's plenty of ravines to go through on those paths to get to the locations that only the shepherd is aware of. Now, to the sheep... If the sheep was trying to understand or figure it out, the sheep would say, why would we go into this dark valley? Why would we go into this dark crevice? Why would the path lead through this type of a ravine? Why would we go through there? The shepherd knows that the only way to the next pasture is through that. The only way to additional growth so the the sheep can put on more weight, they can grow, they can mature, is that they would get more food. And to lead them to that, To a place of maturity means going through some of these dark ravines. So the shepherd leads through that, and that was common in this area. Now God needs to lead you through ravines at times to bring you to higher ground. Now just try to picture this. So on one hand, you have a metaphor. On the other hand, metaphors are intended to be applied to our lives so that we can understand them. Why would the reason I'm going through a dark path sometimes be that it's the right path that God has undertaken for my life. It's because I need it. The way that I get to higher ground is to go through those kinds of things. Those dark places, those hard times, those are what he uses to refine us. Now God doesn't always, that's what I, God doesn't always orchestrate those things in our lives per se, but he sometimes does. He sometimes does bring about trials in our lives. But most of the time, he is interested in taking whatever trials come about as a result of just the natural effect of human free will and free choice. He wants to use those trials and those difficulties that are just a part of everyday life, and he wants to use them for his good and for, for his glory and for our benefit. And so when he wants to do that or use those in our lives, it's because he wants to bring us to someplace better. And that's to be conformed to, into the image of his son, to be more like him to be drawn closer to him, to grow in our faith, to mature in our faith, to mature in our understanding. And it's hard places and dark places that often are the most effective ways of doing that. The things that draw us near to, to him remind us that without him, we are hopeless and helpless. Those are the hard things that do that. It's, it's in the face of challenges where there's a sense of fear or uncertainty or despair. It's in those times that the Christian is most likely to keep their eyes and their focus on the Lord and take on a posture of complete dependence that says, in effect, in that moment, Lord, I need you. Without you, I lose my way. I can't do this with, without you. I can't do this on my own. So you think about hard things in life. It, th- it's, it seems to, you think about times when you're worn out. It doesn't, Deep valleys or dark valleys can include just periods of time when you're fatigued, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're worn out. And in those times, get your eyes back on the Lord. Very often, God uses those in our lives to get our focus back on him because we say, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Now, he wants us to have that posture all of the time. But he knows that we have that tendency to always revert back to an attitude of, I do it. Like the toddler always says, I do it. No, I do it. Me, I'm going to do it. Or that attitude of, don't tell me what to do. 
Don't boss me. I'm my own man. (laughs) And God uses those things to say, no, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, there's nothing you cannot do. And that's the principle that he has to teach us over and over again in dark places, dark valleys, these ravines in our lives, these are the things that God uses. These are the places that test how much we really trust him. These are the hard places that he uses to refine us, to mature us in our faith. One of the verses that reminds me of this principle is this, Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for refining silver, and the furnace is for gold. Likewise, the Lord tests hearts. He tests hearts. And those of you who know, I've spoken of it before, but those of you who are familiar with the process of refining precious metals, now for starters, the thing that's being refined is precious. Would you go through the trouble of refining a metal if it had no value? No, it would be a waste of time. Now, there's plenty of things we do as a waste of time. Some of you might take that on as a hobby. (laughs) Probably something I would take on as a hobby. You might find it relaxing to purify something of no value. God isn't in that business, though. God is in the business of taking things that he finds to have tremendous value and to want to refine them to make them purer. And so he takes the precious thing, in this case, the illustration being gold and silver, and he puts some heat on it. He melts it. Being melted doesn't necessarily sound all that great. A lot of heat involved. A lot of high temperature involved in that. And then the master goldsmith or silversmith, he watches those impurities come to the surface And then he ladles very carefully. He ladles those impurities out of the thing that has such high value and he discards them because they don't don't contribute to the purity of the thing that has so much value to him. They call that dross, the part that is impure within what is otherwise valuable. See, you're not valuable because of anything special in and of yourself. You're valuable because he sees you in love and he desperately loves you. He sees value in you where there is no value of your own making. It's that God in his grace and his love, he still, for some unknown reason, he still sees incredible value in you. He still sees you as a pearl beyond price. We don't have to understand it. We can be thankful for it. God sees you as something incredibly valuable and he wants to use these dark valleys and these ravines in your life, oftentimes the ravines that he's leading you through, to purify you, to make you more mature and draw you closer to himself. Here's another verse about the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, now, though now for a season... If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Talking about trials that these believers are facing in their lives. He's saying you can greatly rejoice in that. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me through the dark valley. Thank you, Lord, for allowing trials in my life. I can rejoice in that even though they're difficult. He says that you are in heaviness through manifold, meaning many, trials. That, why can I rejoice in that, though? Even though they're heavy and they're many. That in the trying of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That God is going to use this in my life to bring himself glory as he uses those trials to draw me nearer to him so that I can operate in a faith walk in dependence on him and live a life that will ultimately bring him glory. A life that he can say in response to, well done, thou good and faithful servant to. Not because of anything that I had done, but because he transformed me and purified me through the trials and testing in my life so that I would come to a place where I would learn to trust him, walk by faith in him, and let him produce in me a life that would be pure, a life that would bring him glory. And when you think about this, the thing that's a good reminder here is that these paths that are dark, these valleys that are dark, they're interspersed amongst the path that God has for us in life, these harder times, these more difficult times. We go through them 
Not, not all of the time. They're fairly constant in the sense that usually one set of circumstances or difficulty is replaced by something else. But they're never, they're never permanent. No matter what it is, even if it extends to the last day you live, it's not permanent in the sense that it'll be done away with for all of eternity as you live in a glorified state in heaven. But even most of the trials of life, they're for a season. We see that here. Though now for a season. They're not the type of thing that are always going to be permanent. And you see that even in the psalm here. They're a part of the journey. They're a temporary part of the journey. But the verse says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say, I set up my permanent residence in the valley of the shadow of death. It says, even when... This is going to be a part of the good shepherd leading me in the right path. And even when, that path leads through the valley of the shadow of death. But it leads through it. I walk through it. And he come out on the other side. You see that for a season. Also in 2 Corinthians 4.17, you see that here too. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, he, he probably is working with more of a perspective that is for a moment in the sense that our lives are for a moment. But the principle is true here that they're light in temporary trials. They're light in the sense that his yoke is easy, his burden is life, is light. I found it so because as I cast my cares on him and he carries those burdens, as he leads in those dark places, as he's the one who directs and provides for my every need, it's not particularly burdensome even though it's dark. Even though I could fear, I don't need to fear we're going to see. Even though I could be wavering and confused, I don't have to be because God is ultimately the one that is undertaking even in those difficulties. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're focused on eternal things. We're focused on how God wants to use these temporary things in our lives to produce in us a mindset that can bring God honor and glory. That's something that will have eternal value. As I live my life in a way that lifts him up, that puts the spotlight on him, that promotes him, that is a reflection of him. That is something that has value to it. And as it has value, it has eternal value. Now, the things that are reminding me of my need for him, the things that are keeping my, my, eyes, my eyes fixed on him, those valleys, those dark crevasses that I come across or even find myself in at times, that those things are used in a way that brings an eternal value, but they're temporary in the sense that this life is temporary. But even within this life, have hope because those things are generally not things that exist or last indefinitely. They're seasons in life. You think about the season that you're in now, a chapter that you're in now. Ask somebody who's older than you. If you're a younger person here going through a hard thing right now and it's been going on for two and a half days and it feels like an eternity, don't despair. If it's been going on for two and a half months or two and a half years, don't despair. You got a lot of life in front of you. Talk to someone older than you. Those hard things, even if they've been going on for 10 years, they'll tell you that there's usually light at the end of the tunnel, even in terms of that specific trial. I'm talking about in the physical realm, light at the end of the tunnel in the sense that it will come to an end. But there's always light at the end of the tunnel because he's the one guiding us through those dark tunnels, those dark valleys, those dark places. You know, whether you want to talk, call it a narrow ravine or a slot canyon or whatever you want to look at it as. But there's light in the, and even in the temporal sense, there's light at the end of the t- t- tunnel. So don't be overwhelmed with that. Now, what mentality can you have in these hard, dark, and difficult times in life? And the answer is, look back to our passage here. So even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lots of different examples of what that could be. I will fear no evil. That's the mentality that you can have even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Listen to the assurance and the certainty in this statement. I will fear no evil. This isn't something that's being said in a wishy-washy kind of a way. Maybe, maybe not kind of a way. 
There's a def- definiteness to the way David is writing this and saying this. I will fear no evil. How could he have that confidence? And we'll get to that as we finish off the rest of the verse. But when we look at fearing no evil, the word translated as evil means danger, harm, or injury. I will fear no harm. I will fear no danger. Now, how could this be possible? How could it be possible to fear no danger, harm, or injury? Remember, the ravine is dark. There is no sunlight. I can't see the path forward. I perceive danger all around. The walls seem like they're closing in. What do you mean? I will fear no evil. I'm being led into a dark valley that approximates even the idea of death itself, a near-death-like experience. I'm being led into that where there is no sun, where there doesn't seem to be any life, where I can't see the path in front of me. What are you talking about when you say, I will fear no evil in those circumstances? How? How could that be possible when we read on? We read on because it says, for you are with me. That's the title of our sermon this morning. That's the takeaway of our sermon this morning. You are with you, me. That's how. You are with me. That's what gives David this confidence to face dark places. Because, that's how you could take the word for, because you are with me. Now note the continued sense of confidence in this reality. He says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. It's stated with such assurance. It's so beautiful how he says that. And that confidence and assurance is based on God's faithfulness and God's promises. You ask, how could David have that confidence in the face of that reality, dark, death-like circumstances? He could have that confidence in the face of that reality because God is faithful, because God is faithful to keep the promises that he's made. So God has made promises, but those promises wouldn't be confidence-inspiring apart from the fact that God had shown himself to be faithful and is a promise-keeping God. So God's promises now have weight to them. And I want to backtrack just for a second to say, what about the dark places or the dark ravines that weren't a part of God leading you to the right places in the right way. They weren't a part of God's right paths for your life. Your life. So if God didn't lead you to that place, can those places still be dark and difficult? Can those places still be the kind of place that would bring you to a place of despair, fear, uncertainty? Could that happen? Even if it's a place that God didn't direct you to, but you led yourself into or were sucked into by your association with others? The prom- this part of the promise is the same. Even, it doesn't really matter how you got there. God would prefer in this illustration, it's wonderful because he's saying, I will take you through these kind of places too. And it'll be for your benefit and you can trust me in them. He's saying, I will bring you to these kinds of places. But you can make the application to, it doesn't matter how you got to this hard place, this dark spot, this tough spot. We're in a tough spot. doesn't matter how you got there. The promise is still true. So you got there through your own rebellion, your own unwillingness to trust the Lord. You're leaning on your own understanding and you got to this dark place. If you turn your eyes to the Lord in that moment, do you have to fear evil? No. Is he with you? Yes. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. If you get to that spot and you won't turn your eyes to the Lord, can you... Should you be worried about negative outcomes, consequences, evil outcomes, being harmed, danger? Yeah, you should be. In the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. Not in the eternal realm because God's going to carry you through. You're going to one day go to be with him because you're his child. But in the temporal realm, it's going to cause this spiritual separation between you and him because you're resisting him. Even when you get to that spot, you're unwilling to look to him. And so as you muddle your way through the consequences and the, and the, the natural consequences of your sinful choices, there's no spiritual life there because you're not turning your eyes to him. 
So there's spiritual death there. There's the, a death-like experience in the physical realm in those moments too. But the person who in that moment recognizes this isn't where God wants me to be. It's a dark spot. It's a dark place. It's a valley of the shadow of death. This, again, not the exact application, but this is a, a, a true application. That person turns their eyes to the Lord. Does that person now have to fear or experience fear? Right then, the answer is no. Now, does that mean that there won't be any consequences associated with those choices? No. But you don't have to fear. You don't have to operate in fear even as you have to accept some of the discipline and consequences that go along with those bad choices. So I wanted to get back to that. I had forgotten about it. Don't get the sense that the only way you cannot fear in dark places is if God is the one who led you there to begin with. That's not true. You don't have to experience fear even in the dark places you brought yourself to, though you still might have to deal with the consequences of those choices. But you can deal with those consequences with an uplifted heart, with a heart that has no fear, with joy in the sense that you can deal and take in and have to work through those consequences knowing that he is by your side, he's with you. You're in fellowship with him at the moment even though the decisions that led to that, you weren't. But now you can still experience his peace and his joy and his contentment and purpose in your life, his that intimacy with him, even in the face of now dealing with the fallout from those choices. So I just wanted to touch on that because very often that's how you got into this dark kind of a place in your life anyway. It wasn't because the Lord directed you to a hard place as he was seeking to use you in a ministry to the loss that involved danger or it involved a road that was very narrow. It involved bringing you into places that are dark. You know, if our job is to be light bearers for Jesus Christ, if the primary function of the Christian is to bring glory to God, now that's very generic, but if bringing glory to God is, is our, the chief aim of the, of the Christian, the chief way to do that is to be an ambassador for him, to point people to him, to be a light bearer for him, to be a reflection of his goodness into the lives of others. And so as you're thinking about being an ambassador for Jesus Christ and the mission of the Christian, the mission of the Christian is to take the good news or the goodness of God into the dark places that he directs us. Now as we do that, we're to do that as lights in the midst of darkness. So as I'm being used of the Lord, will that naturally involve him having to direct my paths, the paths that are right, into places that are dark? Yes, we're talking about how, why would God direct his child into a path that seems dark? Because his mission for me is to bring me at times into places where men love darkness rather than light. I can't illuminate the darkness if I won't ever be led of the Lord to be used in places that at times are dark. Now, is God calling for you to consistently spend your time wrapped up in the evil of the world around you? No. No, he would send you into it and then come, come back out of that. So many people think that they're somehow serving the Lord as they're turning their back on everything that's light. They're not being a part of a local church. They're not fellowshipping with other believers. They're not spending a lot of time in God's word. They're living right in and amongst the lost in a way that there's no decipherable difference between them and the lost at all. And they're saying that, they're justifying that with the sense that I can't, share the gospel with the lost unless I make connections with the lost. Now that's a true principle. It's a true principle being misapplied in that circumstance. It's absolutely true that if you never invest any concern or interest in people that don't know the Lord, if you never get to know people in the community, if you never invest in anybody, your effectiveness at sharing God's light to them is going to be less than it could have been. But you're never going to be the light that God wants you to be by immersing yourself in the darkness and staying in that kind of an existence. That's not God's will for you either. We've got to move on. I'm already falling short of my <laughs> idea here. So what gives me the confidence to face the dark places? It's because you are with me. And so when we look at some of the verses that bring about this, it's based on God's promises and God's faithfulness. So here is 
the thing about God's faithfulness, it could have been many verses we picked. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's how I can have no fear in dark places because you are with me and you're a promise-keeping faithful God. And we see the same idea here in Hebrews 13, a little bit further on, three chapters later. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same idea. He's faithful and he never leaves me. He's with me in the face of this hard thing. And then in the Old Testament, as the prophet Isaiah is speaking to national Israel, but this principle is true on an individual level as it relates to God's children too. He says this, when you pass through the waters, does that seem like a dark place? Yeah, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they won't overflow you. When you walk through the fire, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, does walking through fire seem like that? You shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. It's because I'm with you. That's why it won't have any effect on you in the sense of where you're going to need to have fear. I'm going to preserve you and protect you and lead and direct you even through that dark valley. So we hear, see again in the language that David is using, the personal faith response. He says, you and me. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He's not talking about somebody else again. He's, he's writing this from a poetic perspective as it relates to his own life. I hope you're seeing it this way as we go through the psalm. You see that throughout there. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me he, for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that was very fast, but God is a personal God. This is about your walk with him. You can face any circumstance without fear because God is with you. God is with you. So how could you go through this trial or this difficulty without any fear? Because you are with me. Say that to yourself. You are with me. God is with me. And that's only going to be possible through trusting God in those moments. Now, he's with you whether you're trusting him or not, but you're not going to have no fear unless you're trusting him. I will fear no evil. The reason you have no fear is because I know that he's with me and he's for me and he's providing for me and he's protecting me in this circumstance that I'm going through. So without him by your side, without looking to him in these dark valleys, dark places are terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. I don't need to tell you that. You've experienced that in your own life. But it can be a a place of rest. It can be a place where even you can be experiencing God's goodness and his joy and his mercy even going through those dark valleys if we're looking to him. Trusting him involves being persuaded that he is trustworthy. He knows the way even though it's obscured by darkness. He can provide and protect you each step of the way. The destination he's leading you to is the best destination possible. And of course, knowing this and applying this, they're two very different things. But if the good shepherd is leading you in the paths that are right and they involve the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil in that because he is the one who is with you. I was going to give you a, an illustration of this from another place, but we're not going to do that for the sake of time. The question I do want to ask you, though, is what dark places are you walking through? And who led you there? Now, we've talked about it doesn't necessarily matter. The response is going to be the same either way, but who led you there? Did God bring you to that place as you're seeking to serve him and he's bringing you to a dark place of ministry? Or is is it a dark place of your own creation? Now, who can lead you out? Who can lead you out of that place? And are you terrified of the darkness? Are you willing to trust him? Move forward by faith? You know that you can't get out of a dark spot on a path by standing still. God wants to lead you through that kind of a spot that you find yourself in or if he led you there to begin with. He doesn't want to keep you there. He wants to lead you through that. So I hope that has been helpful. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. And the Lord's Supper is something that we 
do here in our church because there's a biblical pattern for it in the Word of God. Some people refer to them as church as a church ordinance. I don't think you have to get that deep into it. It's something that Jesus said would be beneficial to those that were his followers. And that's a good enough way to explain why we would do it. Because Jesus said, do this as a way of remembering me. So you can call it the Lord's Supper. You can call it communion. I think you're better off probably thinking of it as a time of remembrance. To remember what? A time to remember Christ's sacrifice for you and I. And so if you're remembering Christ's sacrifice for you and I, it would stand to reason that you have accepted that sacrifice on, that was offered on your behalf. Because what interest would you have in remembering something that you've never accepted or that you don't even believe is true or that you haven't applied that sacrifice to your own sin account? You see, there'd be, no, there'd be no reason to come together here on the first Sunday of the month is when we happen to do our remembrance. But you could do it every Wednesday night. You could do it every time you gather. We could have a stand, you know, off on the side here and one over here. And every time you came in here, whenever you felt like it, you could go up and celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's not, it doesn't say you have to do it this way. This is the way we do it. But it's not a mystical thing. It's a remembrance. It's an opportunity to collectively gather corporately to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if I'm going to remember his death, the only reason I would celebrate that, it's a celebration. It's not a somber thing. It's a celebration. Now, it can be somber because as we reflect on how much God loved us and how he was willing to die in our place, you can have some sadness in even thinking about that. But the overall overwhelming feeling should be gladness that God loved you enough to be willing to do that for you. And so as he was willing to take your place and die in your place, that's what we're celebrating. But the question becomes, have you believed in that? So for those of you who don't understand it, the picture here is that there's juice that looks like blood. It's grape juice here at our church. But there's juice that looks like blood that represents the blood that Christ shed as he died in your place. And then there's wafers that are to picture his body, which was broken for you. So as he died in your place, his body was broken. It was, he was beaten to a pulp. And he shed his blood as he died, a death that he never deserved to die for sins he had never committed. So the picture is one of remembering that great sacrifice. But why did he have to sacrifice himself at all? Well, the answer is simple. We were born imperfect. We were born tainted by the taint of sin and how that had come into the world through Adam and Eve to begin with, but then had permeated and spread to all mankind so that every person born was born with this tendency towards sinfulness. And then by choice, every person chose to do things that were against what God said was right, to rebel against God. Well, because of that and God, the fact that God and his character is perfectly holy, man found himself distanced from God or estranged from God on the basis of this sin that was blocking this relationship that at the beginning had been close and intimate. So where there was no sin, mankind and God fellowshiped and walked and talked together and experienced this great intimacy. And then what happened is that sin came into the way, sin being to rebel against God, to do what God says is wrong. And that caused caused this division. Just like if you think about your human relationships, somebody mistreating somebody else, it causes a separation. It causes a barrier there that has to be worked through in order to restore the relationship. Well, in this case, God is perfectly holy. And because God is perfectly holy, he cannot have anything to do with sin or would impact his perfectness or his holiness. So even if a little bit of sin came into contact with God's holiness, what was perfect wouldn't be perfect anymore. It would be tainted. So if you took one drop of food coloring and put it into something that was pure, the whole thing would be tainted. And so God was separated from us now because of this taintedness of sin on our part, and God could not now be tainted by that sin if we were to come into close fellowship with him. And so God, though, was also loving. God was righteous, too. He couldn't overlook sin, but he was loving, and he said, I don't want it to remain this way. I want to be reconciled to 
mankind. I want to have this relationship restored. Well, the only way that that could happen is if the penalty or the consequence or the debt that was owed for sin was taken care of so that that debt could be wiped out and a perfect person could be in a good standing again without any negative, any, any red on their account. Their account wasn't in the negative. Something would have to be done about that. Well, in this case, though, the debt that was owed for sin was death. It was eternal separation from God. And so that meant that there was only really two possibilities. One, we would have to die to pay our own debt, which would mean that we would spend all of eternity estranged from God and separated from God. Or there would have to be somebody else that would die in our place so that the debt could be satisfied. We could be put back in a right standing with a holy God, but we ourselves wouldn't have to die. And so the good news of the gospel or the good news that we celebrate with the Lord's Supper is that God, recognizing that need, he came up with a plan of redemption, a plan of rescue, where he sent the Redeemer, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God who would die in the place of the guilty. So if there had to be death to satisfy the debt owed by the guilty, then God and In his love, he said, I'm going to send somebody whose life or the value of his death exceeds the debt that's owed for all man's sin. And so as God sent his son Jesus and Jesus died in our place, he paid the debt that each one of us owed, which was eternal separation from God. And then the question becomes, if he paid the debt that was owed, why isn't everybody saved? Why isn't everybody in a right standing with God? Because he said, I'm not going to force you to accept this gift that I've made available. The gift is made available by the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. So the death, the, the death of Christ and the value of his death was greater than all of man's sin. But yet, even though the value is available to pay or wipe out the debt, it has to be applied to the account. And the only way that it can be applied to your account or each individual account is if that person will accept what Christ has done as a personal gift on his behalf, to make a mental decision that instead of trusting in myself to be able to deal with my own debt, instead of being, putting my trust in my religious efforts and religious works, in my human effort to deal with the debt that I owe, I'm going to put my confidence in Christ's substitutionary payment of my debt. I'm going to put my confidence that when he died in my place, he fully satisfied the debt that I owed. And I'm going to put all of my eggs in that basket, my complete trust and faith in that I'm going to accept it as a free gift. I'm not going to seek to do anything or add to something that God said was perfect. And I do that by, in my mind, being convinced to put my confidence in what Christ has already done for me. So the good news of the gospel is that it's not about what man can do for God. It's about what God has done for man through the work of his son. And so as God has done that for man through the work of his son, the question is, what is my part in it? Well, my part in it is, will you accept that? Will you believe that? Will you put your confidence in that? That's why the Bible says he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So when you think about Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection on your behalf, the question isn't, did he do it? The question isn't, was that satisfactory? Did that satisfy the debt I owed? The question is, will I accept it? Will I put my confidence in that? Will I trust in that? So that's why we have up on the wall one of the most famous verses in Christianity. Though famous, it's very misunderstood. It says that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. You see, the only condition of getting a hold of this new life that God makes available through the sacrifice of his son is will you believe in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf? Now, I understand that's something many of you have heard many, many times, but if you're one of the people who has heard that before but never accepted it, never believed it, you don't have to say anything to me. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to kneel down. You don't have to pray any kind of a special prayer. In your mind, you have to decide today is the day of salvation. I'm not going to spend one more day estranged from the one who's already provided a way. I'm not going to spend one more day separate from the one who loves me. I'm going to put my confidence in what he's already done for me and I'm going to believe it. I'm going to accept that it's true. And that very second that you make that decision, you are born again. You're born into God's family. He says, I'll never let you go. And he says, now you have something to remember. Now you have something to celebrate. Now you have something to join in with the other 
people here who have already made that decision and be a part of that as a body of believers celebrating the Lord's death until he comes. But if you haven't accepted that, it would be disingenuous to pretend to celebrate something that you have never believed in. So I would say just let the cup pass you by. Let the bread pass you by and think about what's stopping me from putting my confidence in what Jesus has already accomplished for me. If it's not of works, it's if, if it's a free gift that's offered by grace, what's stopping me from accepting it? God's holding it out to me. What's stopping me from grabbing it and taking it and believing in it? I'd ask the elders to come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.